I'm giving you 15 minutes. You will begin with your understanding of the Bible and you will end with your understanding of the return of Jesus. And in between, you will talk about all the major doctrines of the Christian faith in a way that will make sense for your life and the lives of others. Can you do it? Let me help you join us for this series that we're doing on Sunday night called Doctrines for Living. You need to turn in your Bibles tonight to Genesis 1. We will not start there, but by God's grace, we will end there tonight at Genesis 1 and uh, walk through Genesis 1. So let's pray. Father, we bow before you tonight as not only the sovereign ruler of the universe, but as the one who rules over that which you created. You are the creator of all that is. And you speak to us in your word very clearly about your being the creator. And you speak to us very clearly about the importance, the ultimate and infinite importance of our affirming that you indeed created the heavens and the earth. In fact, you tie our affirmation of your being the creator to our acknowledgement of Jesus being the Savior and Lord of his people. So much so that there is no way that we could affirm the truth of the gospel without affirming the truth of you being creator. So much is at stake as we come to this issue of immense concern uh, that has been an issue of immense concern not throughout the history of time, but throughout the last couple of hundred years. Until then, there was little or no question of who created the world. And yet we have come to that place in our culture and in other cultures where it is an issue of debate. And there are those who declare themselves to be your children who have views of how the creation came to be that are not in compliance at all with what your word teaches. And so I pray that you would help us tonight to see the situation we're in and also to hear what your word teaches us about your being the creator of the world. We thank you for this time together. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be present among us to teach us tonight and to guide our thoughts together. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we're going to talk about the creation of the world. Next Sunday night, we're going to talk about the creation of man or the creation of humans. And then the following Sunday night, we'll wrap up this section on the doctrine of God and talk about angels and demons. These three things are matters of immense importance in our understanding the nature and character of God. 
that God created the world, that God created humans, and that in the midst of creation, God created angels, and those angels were servants of God. Some of those angels fell away from God and were brought under the condemnation of God, and they became the demonic forces that are very active and very present in our world. So there is not even any possibility of believing in God and not believing in angels and demons. No more than there is any possibility of believing in God and not believing that the creator of the world, that is, the one who created the world, is very clear, and that one is God. So let's talk tonight about the doctrine of creation, and I want to begin tonight by uh, establishing the situation we're in first and foremost, and then move to Genesis 1. I'm going to do this uh, a bit, I don't think it's backward, but a bit differently tonight. And uh, we begin with this affirmation or this assertion, the doctrine of creation is the key and central issue that separates Christianity from all forms of secularism. Now, secularism is simply a philosophy that the meaning of the world or the meaning of life is found within ourselves and within the framework of the things in this world. So if you want to find the meaning of your life, you don't look outward or upward to God. You don't look outward to others. You look within yourself so that the only place you will find any meaning in your life is within yourself. Now, we are in church, and people would say, well, nobody believes that. Well, there are a lot of, there's a lot of teaching. In fact, uh, some of the most influential teachers are teaching that whatever we are, we should be ourselves. Well, how do you know who yourself is? You look within yourself, and you find within yourself who you are, and then you attach that to the things of this world. And you accumulate as much of the things of this world as you can accumulate because those two things together, finding your meaning within yourself and attaching yourself to the things of the world is what gives you your meaning as a human being. That's secularism. And it's the primary operating philosophy of American culture divorced from the Word of God. It is what so many people in our society believe is the way of life. But you and I believe that God created the world, and God created everything in the world, and God created everything in the world so that his name would be greatly exalted. So the meaning in life is found in God. We don't look within ourselves to find meaning because when we look within ourselves, we find our sinful selves that are bent upon the fulfillment of our own desires. We don't look outward to others because others are equally sinful to us. We look upward to God, and it's from God through who he is and what he has done that we find the meaning of life. Now, in our culture... We have all but abandoned the doctrine of creation. Not in the church. 
praise God, in the conservative evangelical church, there is still the affirmation and the assertion that God created the heavens and the earth. Now, when I say in the church, I mean the conservative evangelical church, those churches that affirm the inerrancy, infallibility, and sufficiency of Scripture. Mainline Protestantism, which includes the Episcopal Church, the Liberal Presbyterian Church, and the United Methodist Church, those denominations do not affirm across the board that God alone created the heavens and the earth. They do not make that a matter of supreme importance in their system of belief, but we do. We tie that to a person being a Christian. Now, you can become a Christian through the gospel of Jesus Christ, but as you grow in your Christian faith, you grow to affirm and acknowledge as absolute truth the creation of the universe by God. Now, this is what we have seen, and I want you to, I want you to see this. What we have seen is that the, the questioning of God creating the heavens and the earth did not emerge, and I prayed this a few minutes ago, it did not emerge in the entire history of the world. You can't find it until the 17th century in Europe. And then there were those who began to question it. And the flow of the questioning I've laid out here because once you start here with deism, you're not going to stop with deism. You're going to go down this pattern this is where you're going, and I want to show you. In the 17th century, what emerged, and with a vengeance in the 18th century, was the teaching of deism. Now, deists do not deny that God created the world. It's just the first step. This is what deists teach. God created the world. He handed the world he created over to humans. And he said to those humans, this is your world. Run it. God removes himself to heaven, and he hands over the operation of the earth to us. If you're a true deist, you would never sing, this is my father's world. You couldn't. Because deists believe that after God created the world, he handed the world over to us, and the world is run by humans, and it operates by the laws of nature. An inherent operation of the world by the rule of cause an effect. We know the effect, we find the cause, and Deus taught that the world operates mechanistically. It's like a machine. And the way you work in the world 
is that if there's an effect, you find the cause and you can remedy bad effects by remedying bad causes. Now, all you've got to do is think about how our lives work and know it doesn't work that way. Now, uh, science, science, we can never say about science any kind of science. Physical science, biological science, chemical science, it doesn't matter. We can't say about any scientific endeavor that it is exact. There is no such thing as an exact, completely exact science because the world doesn't operate that way. So that deism was believed by many people in Europe. They brought that belief to America so that when people came to America and we formed this wonderful democratic republic, the primary philosophy and theology of the founders of this country, the signers of the Declaration of, of Independence, they were not Christians, they were deist. And they saw God as the creator who handed the world over to human beings, and the world operates by the laws of nature. Well, it didn't remain that way. It gave birth eventually to panentheism. Panentheism, God is found in and through the world. That we need to look at how the world operates, and we need to use our brain, we need to use reason and logic, and if we will use reason and logic to find out the source of whatever is going in the world, on in the world, in every area. If we will use our reason, it will lead us to the only God that is. God is not above us and beyond us as a holy, righteous, sovereign ruler. God has brought down, deists see God in heaven, panentheists bring God down to earth. So God becomes just an exalted version of who we are. And we find him within the framework of the world. Panentheists didn't remain in vogue. They gave way to pantheists. Pantheists are people that see the world as all that is. And the world is the only God that we can know. We find God in the midst of the world. Now, this is the kind of person, to put it in, in, in uh, very <laughs> uh, plain terms, you've heard people say this, haven't you? I don't have to go to church to a sacred space to worship God. I can worship God where? Just go to the woods or go to the lake. Well, you see God's creative hand in the world, but you can't give genuine worship to the great and glorious God in that context. Because nature represents what God has made. Nature doesn't embody the presence and power of who God is. So pantheism didn't last either. By the time we get into the 19th century, moving toward the 20th century, uh, we saw pantheism give birth to humanism. If God is not above and beyond the world as holy and righteous... 
if God is in the world and if God is just slightly bigger than human beings and slightly better than human beings, then that's not a far leap for us to reach humanism. So what happens is that in the late 18th into the 19th century, the whole focus of society began to change, and that change began to make itself known not just in the the school systems, in the educational system, and in businesses, it began to make itself known in the church, and we began to move toward humanism. And humanism is simply this. Humans are the focal point for meaning in the world and the measure of all meaning. Meaning is found within ourselves. So that the educational system, the business world, was structured to make everything amenable to the human beings who occupy the system. So this is what happens. You get a job. You go to work. There was a time when you got a job, you went to work. Your employer did not ask you, are you happy? Is your work environment suitable to you? Are things going well? Do you feel good about your work? That was not asked. All was asked was, are you doing your job, right? Now, humanism doesn't operate that way because the ultimate focal point for meaning in the world and what measures all meaning is is humans. That gave birth eventually to naturalism and materialism because if you depend on human beings to be the center of meaning in the world, human beings are going to fail one another. We're going to fail the system. We're going to find ways to, uh, to skirt around the system. We're going to find ways to get our own way in the midst of the system. It doesn't work. Naturalism and materialism took over. The physical natural world is all that is. If you want meaning, you will find it in the things of this world in the midst of time. What became true in American culture was, and it's increased in the 20th, late 20th, 21st century, is that meaning is found in the passionate pursuit of pleasure. We've all become Epicureans. Eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, Do what you want to do. Fulfill your desires in this world because that's all you've got. It comes down to ourselves and the pursuit of what would make us happy. Eventually, this leads to agnosticism where people begin to think there may be something or someone beyond the natural, physical world, but we could never know him. And if we could know him, in order to know him, we must bring him down to our level. And you see this in churches because what happened in the middle of the 20th century into the late 20th century is that we lost the sense. I I would never say we diminished the sense. I would say we lost the sense of God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's wrath, God's judgment, God's otherness, that God is way beyond us and we can't get to him. We brought God all the way down to our level 
And the goal in a relationship with Jesus was not to submit to his lordship, but to make Jesus our best friend and we could hold hands with him and walk happily through life. That kind of view of God is no God at all. It is an an agnosticism that began to infect our society. It came to the place where people were writing, and I want to try to show you this, people were writing that we live in a world, and I'm going to use big words here and then I'll explain them to you. We we, we live in a world that consists of the noumenal and the phenomenal. The phenomenal simply means things we can touch and taste and feel and handle. The things that make up our lives. The noumenal means those mysterious things that are beyond us that belong to the realm of God. Now, to put this in, in real simple terms, Richard Foster, who recently died, Richard Foster, who was a really wonderful Quaker writer who, who wrote about things spiritual, Richard Foster said, we all live in a two-story house. And the bottom floor is the kitchen and the den. It's where real life is lived. The upper story is that story where God lives. And in order to function in this world, we have to visit where God lives while we live in the den and kitchen of the real world. What he did was argue that we can only engage in spiritual things in a mysterious way and only do that occasionally. While we live in the real world of every day, we have a family, we go to work, we go to school, we go to our activities, but those two worlds never meet. Now, what that leads to is a conclusion that there is no real connection between what it means to know God, love God, and serve God, and what it means to live in the real world. Richard Foster's writings were very, very influential. So what it produced was people who come to church, and you just think about this. This can be real in my life and your life. We come to church to meet with God. And when we're at church, we want to meet with God, and we want to worship God, and we want to hear his word taught. But then when we go home, we enter a different world. And that world is not a world occupied by any real thoughts of God and being committed to God. Now, eventually... Eventually, that agnosticism, that living as if there is no God, and that's what agnosticism is. It's living on Sunday as if there is, and we hope that he is, but it's living Monday through Friday as if he isn't. That agnosticism leads to atheism. There's nothing beyond us or around us, so all meaning and purpose is within us, and it's created 
by us. If children grow up in a home where the home is a two-story house and they are, they are brought to church on Sundays to encounter God, but they live in a home and family during the week where there's little encounter with God, in our kind of culture, they will move through the system and they will come to the place, many of them, where they no longer have any need for God. They will question God. They will question whether or not God is real. And you know that's happening in somebody's soul when they begin to question creation. Did God really create the heavens and the earth? So let's look at it. The pressing question as it relates to creation has always been, still is, why is there something out there and not nothing? Why is there a world? Why do we live in this world and how did it get here? Here are the three responses that have been given throughout time. Number one, the world is self-existent and it's eternal. The world has always been. And it's always been self-existence and, it will, and, and self-sustain. It has always been and it has always been. The second one, self-creation. The world emerged either out of something that was here already or it emerged out of nothing. Now, <clears throat> let's, just be, <laughs> let's just be clear here. What's the problem with this? This is the popular view in our day. It is the foundational view of evolution. Huh? Yeah, you can't, you, you gotta have, you can't have both of these. So let's look at, let's look at choice A. So somebody says to you, a good evolutionist would say, the world emerged out of something. There was something there And out of that something, the universe began to evolve. What's your question? You're a Christian, and you have somebody saying that to you, and you ought to be jumping out of your skin to ask a question. What is it? Yeah. (laughs) Where did that something come from? What is that something? And where did it come from? Now, if they are good evolutionists, what's their answer going to be? We don't know. I'm not making that up. I'm serious. That's, their, that's the only answer they got. We don't know where it came from. We just know there was something there, and out of that something, whatever it was, and there are different theories about what it was, the universe emerged. Everything in the universe emerged. Well, here's the second one here. There was something that was already there, or there was nothing. There are scientists with PhDs who believe that and teach that in our university system. What's wrong with that? I'm the worst math student in this church. I'm probably the worst math student in Burke County. 
I don't do math. Every time I go to deposit checks or money in the bank, they always check me because they know my addition. I just don't do math. But I, I do know this. Zero plus zero equals zero minus zero equals zero. Zero times zero equals zero. Zero divided by zero equals zero. Zero raised to the 110th power equals zero. You can't get something out of nothing. So you're back to option one. And this is where the evolutionary hypothesis is right now in our culture. It's people saying there was something, and out of that something, the entire universe emerged, and we have no idea what that something was or how it came into existence. This is the biblical view. The universe was created by something or someone. Now, you and I, would, we know the biblical view is created by someone, and that someone is self-existent and eternal. Now, you need to praise God for this. I'm gonna, I want you to see this. Because there are men and women that are teaching in our universities who, if they said, I don't know whether you know this or not, but there are plenty of universities right now in this state and all over our country that if you profess to be, you're trying to get an appointment on the faculty and you profess to be a conservative evangelical Christian, you have already said, I can't get an appointment. They won't appoint you to teach in that university. That's happening all over. If you are going to teach in the science department, you're completely gone. So there are many Christian people that they're not teaching creation science. They're teaching this view that the world was created by something or someone. There had to be someone who did this. And they're calling it intelligent design. If you have design in the creation, now think about this. If you have design in the creation, what does that imply? You've got a designer. You've got a creator. And they're teaching this, and students are listening to this, and they're having to deal with this because the question becomes, if you've got design in the creation, you've got to have a designer. What's the next question? Who is the designer? And where would you go in ancient literature uh, to find the evidence of a designer? We would say, you go to Scripture. You go to Scripture. Before, before the 17th century... Nobody questioned, nobody questioned the emergence of the universe as anything other than the creation of God, really until I said the 18th century, until the 17th century. The world and everything in it is the result of what God did. This is prior to uh, the 17th century. The result of what God did, who was seen as the creator, the center of the universe, the ultimate cause of all things, 
the one who controlled all things, who revealed himself in his world and his word. Scientists, theologians, philosophers, teachers, people all over the world believe that as absolute truth. That this is God's world, and God is the center of his world. Then along came the Enlightenment, and everything shifted. It was a tectonic shift, and we're still feeling the results of this massive tsunami. This is what we shifted from. This is important to see, I believe. Prior to the Enlightenment, we believed that all truth that was worth knowing came through the revelation of God. God was the creator, the center of the universe. God makes himself known to us. He reveals himself. With the Enlightenment, we shifted from revelation to reason. Knowledge begins with us, not with God. And to know God, we have to be thinkers. Before the Enlightenment, the center of the universe was God. People lived in the fear of God. People revered God. People honored God. Let me give you an example of this. Before the 17th century... In the United, in the uh, all across Europe, and then into the 18th century, coming to America, the day of the week that pagans didn't even do anything was what Sunday. Why? Because they feared God. Sunday was honored as a sacred day. Because the center of the universe was God. But with the enlightenment, it shifted to humans. The Lord's day did not become a day to honor God. It became a day for humans to do what humans wanted to do. It became our day. The, word, the, the, the focus shifted from the Bible and theology. Prior to the 18th century, the most important department in every university was the Department of Theology or the Department of Bible. Every student who went to a university had to study theology because the most important knowledge that you could gain was knowledge of God. And this was not true just in Bible colleges. This was true in every, every school. The earliest schools in the United States of America their main department, their first hires were men to teach theology. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Brown. Now they glory in being atheistic institutions. Because we've shifted from an emphasis on the Bible and theology to science. Science is the tool by which we employ reason to get at what is true knowledge. We've shifted from knowledge being what we receive from God through His Spirit by His Word to knowledge being what we learn from research and investigation. Now, there's nothing wrong with science. We give thanks to God for science and all of its great tools. We give 
thanks to God for those who do research and investigation. But here is the big shift. I want you to see this. When we were, when we were deist, when the world was deist, Europe and into America, this is what deist thought, taught. The world is made by God, and he made the world like a clockmaker designs a clock. The world does not need God to function. But if we study the world that God made, it is a world that is carefully designed by God, and science studies the world to discover how God designed the world. So the study of science was rooted in the understanding of God being the creator of the world, and he does things orderly so that if we will study and do research, we are looking at how God designed the world. Darwinian evolution doesn't believe that at all. It believes in spontaneous generation or, by the way, that has changed over the years because some of you remember that when you first heard of evolution, Charles Darwin was speaking of the evolution of the universe over millions of years. You know what's happened to millions? It's kind of like, it's kind of like debt in America. It's no longer mi millions. What is it? It's not any more billions either. What is it? Trillions. And see, in evolution, we're, we, many of us will live to see the day when evolution won't talk. Now they talk about millions of years. They're going to soon be talking about billions and trillions of years. Because they've got to have all of that time to get back to the original source and show all of these changes that have taken place through the years. Evolution believes that life began in the simplest of forms and that it moved from simple to complex. Evolution also believes that the world began as a bad and violent place and over all of these years we've gotten better and better. The evidence that you see and experience for evolution is not credible. There are many Christians that, that say they don't believe in evolution, but they believe in theological evolution. If you're going to believe in theological evolution, go the whole way because heresy is heresy. Theological evolution, I used to believe it. I used to teach it. God is the creator, but evolution is the mechanism. It won't work. If God is the creator, he created everything, and he created it for his own glory. We need, we need to recover by the grace of God through the Spirit of God the doctrine of creation. And it depends on us seeing the authority of the Bible and the work of science in its proper order. Science operates under the authority 
of the Word of God. And the Word of God tells us about what God was doing in His creation, bringing order out of chaos, structure out of that which was unstructured, and science studies that, investigates that, in order to bring glory and honor to God and to confirm Scripture. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 13. We'll get to Genesis 1 next week. I'm not going to make it tonight. But Romans 13, because this is what I want you to see. I want you to see that the authority of the Word of God is absolute and total. That the authority of Scripture covers everything. And we are subject as believers to the authority of Scripture. Now look at Romans 13. Romans 13 during the days of the pandemic has been often quoted and more often misquoted and misrepresented in terms of what it really says. I want you to see what it really says. There is an authority that government has. Don't ever doubt that. Government has an authority. But the authority of government is never equal to the authority of the Bible. The authority of the Word of God is absolute. The authority of government is exercised in submission to the authority of the Word of God. So Paul says in Romans 13, now remember he's writing during the time when Roman emperors were horrible and they were killing Christians. Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except what? The phrase literally means under God. God is the absolute authority and God's word is what God says, so God has ordained government to be under his authority so that the authority of government has been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. We give ourselves in submission to the government, when government functions as God has ordained it to function because government has been instituted by God and those who resist will incur, will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. Paul just told us why governments exist. Governments exist to honor and promote what is good and to punish and put down what is evil. That's why government exists. And if you would not want to fear government, then do what is good and you will receive his approval, for he is good's, God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid because he does not bear the sword in vain. 
for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. A government exists to promote that what is good and to honor that, what is, that which is good, to exalt that which is good, and to honor those institutionally who are doing what is good and to keep away from those who are doing what is good that which is evil and to punish them. That means a good government in the United States of America at the federal level, the state level, and the local level would promote the protection of the church. Yes, because the church is doing what is good. Wherever there are people that are doing what is good and right, the government exists not to punish them, but to promote them and to protect them. Because of this, verse 6, because of this, you also pay taxes. You pay your taxes. You give to Caesar what is due to Caesar. For the authorities of ministers of God attending this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are due are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. You honor those who are in authority in the government and you stand under them so long as they're doing that which promotes that which is good, which brings glory and honor to God. When that ceases to be the case, then God gives us what is needed by his spirit to stand against those who would oppose what is good. Absolute authority does not come from the world. Absolute authority comes from God. And we are given, as the people of God, our lives to obey God and to submit our lives to the authority of his word. That takes us all the way back to Genesis 1. That what the Bible teaches us about creation is that the creation, all of it, is the work of God. And if creation in all of its components is the work of God, then we who are those created by God are to bow before God, not just to worship him, but to obey him and to honor him. And next Sunday night, we will begin by walking through Genesis 1 and looking at what the Bible teaches us about, uh, about creation. Have you ever gone somewhere in the Bible and you think, I've been through that before and I know what it says, so I don't need to go back through it again? Uh, I have uh, done that recently with Genesis 1. Uh, I thought, I can teach Genesis 1. I don't really need to go back through it again. I spent hours going back through Genesis 1, and I'm seeing things that I've never seen before. And I, can't, I, I wanted to teach it tonight. I was excited to teach it tonight, but you'll have to wait till next week and I'll teach it then. Any questions before we go or comments? I've covered a lot of stuff tonight. Well, let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for this day, this uh, beautiful, wonderful Lord's Day. 
It is good to be together, and we thank you for your presence among us. We pray for we pray for our community as many of our students and teachers and administrators go back to uh, their duties tomorrow, go back to life in the real world, and we pray you w- would watch over them. We pray for our community in these days as uh, we continue to uh, try to deal together with what we have been facing. We thank you for the kinds of uh, good reports that are coming out of this community and others, and we are grateful, we are thankful to you because you alone are God. And we pray now your blessings upon our week, that you would watch over us, that you would use us this week and give us good opportunities to be good and faithful witnesses to you and to encourage one another, to care for one another, to reach out to one another, to minister to one another. And God, we do want to pray as we go tonight. I just learned this afternoon of the death of Bruce Early's mother and uh, this past week, and I pray for Bruce and thank you so much for him and what he means to us. And uh, we pray your blessings on him. Encourage him. Help us to be an encouragement to him, to be a good church family to him and uh, to show him uh, in ways that, uh, that are sincere from our hearts, that we love him and we care about him. And we're thankful, very grateful to call him brother. And we'll call him brother forever and ever because of Jesus. And we thank you again for this day you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.